Hey everybody, welcome back. It's the Smart Party coming at you through the podcasting airwaves like we do sporadically, like a wandering monster in a dungeon of audio delights. How about that? I just spent seconds thinking of that one, guys. You're all right. <laughs> I'm all right, Baz, yeah. I'm thinking this wandering monster table needs some more creatures on it, frankly, but yes, yes, I'm good. <laughs> or for it's a gelatinous cube. <laughs> 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 Roll D2 podcasters. <laughs> Sometimes plus one if we've been abroad. Uh, maybe the wilderness encounter table's got more people on it. I don't know. Could do. There's an interesting conversation I had quite recently, actually, on the, online, as it is, um, when someone wanted some monsters to populate his dungeon with and was going for generic mm-hmm. ones. And there's a, a rather curious conversation about which ones you could use and which ones you couldn't. And things like a Beholder IP... But apparently, uh, an owl bear isn't. So you can use right. you can use an owl bear just like wherever you want. I don't know mm-hmm. why you'd want to use one, but it was just curious that certain monsters, like mind flayers, for example, you're not allowed to use, and then other ones like gelatinous cubes are probably all right. Yeah, yeah. Those are the only two you've managed to hit them both. Oh, right. Beholders and well mind flayers. Yeah, I know. There you go. That's the extent of your D and D knowledge. <laughs> yeah. So um, there you go, listeners. That was, and why are we talking about owlbears and beholders anyway? There's a reason for this, right? Yeah, well, you and I and some others have been playing a bit of D&D online, haven't we? We've played a couple of games. Yes, yeah, some people have played D&D online, and we've just noticed. <laughs> well, we thought we'd get out of the, the 90s and go back to the same kind of 70s, I think, or something. Or the, or the modern day, depending <laughs> on which way you look at it. But there's a new edition of D&D out. I say new. Two years old now or something, <laughs> is it? <laughs> something like, like that. Four years old. Four years. We are absolutely bleeding edge. Oh, my God. Well, 1999 was only a decade ago, so that's, that's kind of where Correct. I am. Correct. I think the thing with it, though, isn't it, is that D&D 5 or new or whatever you want to call it, that's been really kicking off recently. Certainly all the guys in the shop mm. know about it, anything I see online, all the Twitch channels, YouTube, all that kind of stuff. There just seems to be a ton of D&D being played like it was back in the old days when we were kids. Mm. Uh, more so than... You know, any other time in that I can recollect, you know, this side of TSR, I guess. Yeah, yeah. So the fifth edition of the old War Horse has, it has been around, been kicking around for a while, and it's been kicking around even longer than most people think because it was in playtest, an open playtest for a good couple of years as D&D Next. So for some of us, it feels like old hat, but I'm, you know, delighted to see that tens of thousands, if not more, and it's difficult to put a number on it, but there are, new gamers coming into the hobby every day by their tens and thousands, largely due to online presence, streaming, uh, stuff like Critical Role, uh, stuff like Matt Colville's channel. Matt Colville's raised over a million bucks on Kickstarter, mm-hmm. what is ostensibly a, a, you know, a fairly obvious source book, but actually people are just buying into uh, web personality, and, and rightly so, his stuff's great. But YouTube and all of the other ways that, that the young'uns of today access their media has become a fantastic platform for D&D, which has got to be good for the whole hobby, right? It's mm, not, you know, the definitely. rising tide, etc. Well, as it stands right now, it seems that D&D is, I'm not going to say mainstream, but it's as mainstream as it's ever been. Um, maybe as mainstream as it will ever get. But it's, it's more than just the occasional nod on Big Bang Theory now. Now there are people actually playing it, not just wearing the T-shirt. Now there are people asking how they get into games, trying to figure out you know which adventure is the best one to go for to start with uh, what's it like to be a dungeon master that these are you know genuinely good faith questions that, that even i'm hearing um and they're not from 40 year old white dudes so this is great so yeah. what a time to get into D and um you've left it late but giving it a go well i thought i'd give it a go yeah i mean i'm, I'm not <laughs> like very snowboarding hip- i don't like being <laughs> hipster but seeing as Seeing as someone was offering to run us a game, it seemed rude not to, really. Although, True. curiously, I've not really read much of the rules, and this is probably one where you can talk us through the player's hand guide at some point or something. But um, one of the good things about D&D 5th, I found, because it seems, it seems one of those games that has got quite a few options to it, and especially if you're not going to start at first level, there's quite mm. a few picks, and it's not immediately obvious what you do, but there's D&D Beyond the app, or a web-based functionality that, that you can use for free if you just use the basic stuff that enabled me to create um, a third level character quite easily without really knowing what I was doing, I just went through the app and pressed some buttons and now I've got a halfling ranger at third level for some reason but that was really interesting uh, and I think that's one of the ways in which it's a 
good game currently in terms of the way it's supported in that if you wanted to play our game you can just use that and not even have any rule books and then just turn up mm. I mean you might not have the, the best min-maxed character or something like that and make some dodgy picks or ones that seem a bit odd but you can for free just go and make some characters and turn up at somebody else's D&D game and get joined in yeah I mean D&D's got a lot of things going for it and it's got a lot of things that aren't so great as well but one of the major draws for I think a lot of people is just how easy it is to get a game of it now, I mean, uh, we, we play a niche hobby, and some of the, the games we play within that hobby are niches within niches within niches. But if you really want to get a game, if you've got an internet connection, you could be playing D&D within 15 minutes with anybody in the world. And it really wouldn't be that tricky. As to the quality of that game, well, you know, you pay your money and it takes your choice. <laughs> or you don't pay your money because it's still really easy to find stuff across Roll20 and all the rest of it. So scaring up a D&D game is not hard. Um, and it's not hard in real life either. If you want to go to stores, you can play an Adventurers League or there's conventions and there's all the usual kind of outlets. And, and Wizards of the Coast do appear to be making a better fist of it this time because traditionally their online apps have been, well, shonky is a nice way of putting it. Sometimes they've been god-awful. <laughs> uh, sometimes they've been really good, but just like in a way that nobody can access them. I remember in 4th edition you had to have Silverlight installed. Hmm. Yeah, exactly. You're gonna to have to go and look that one up, I think. But it was it was great if you could get it, and you just if you couldn't get it, it was awful. Um, so they're making more of an effort these times, and although it's still not perfect, like you say, you can get you can get a character and a game pretty swiftly because you know you alluded to the players the players' handbook, which I have in my hand now. I'm waving it at you across the magic of the internet. Oh, I can see it. Yeah. That yeah, if you sit down and try and generate a character from that on your own. Uh, it's probably no harder than most games, but like most games, who on earth would ever want to do that? <laughs> um, I'm trying to think what it was like to generate your first ever character in Savage Worlds, which is a game we both love. But, you know, could you sit down with the rule book on your own and figure it out? You could figure it out, but you'd be there a while, wouldn't you? I think you know the first time. The, the sort mm. of comparable bit for me is uh, for a convention this weekend, I've made some Earth Dawn characters. Uh, All right. that sort of point by on the stats which you can now do in D&D as well which is fine, there's none of this real men have to roll 3d6 in order and take what they're given you can just like allocate points to make the sort of character you want to make um, but in the Earth Dome one there's like um, it's not quite uh, got a, a clean mathematical progression of the scale in terms of how many points you spend to get things so it doesn't quite, mm. I don't know who designed it or whether they designed it or just put random numbers on a page but the stats end up bleeding out 10 other things and it was quite hard work trying to work out what your stats were to get the right step and physical defense and various other things so even mm. for that an old school game i found like a java based program someone had written so i could plug numbers in the front and then other things would come out the other end to make the maths easy for me um yeah. and you know that just seemed a lot better than me sitting down trying to make six characters for earth Dawn like i used to back in the day so i think that's the sort of thing that D's got now when i made my little halfling i just monkeyed the numbers up and down on an app Till I got something that looked sensible rather than sitting there with a yeah. pen and paper trying to work it out. Okay. So so your experience was made a bit easier from that. But um, but the other sort of old school thing that you've done there is you've generated your character on your own. And that's properly old school. That mm-hmm. goes back to when you used to have like, you would go down to the gaming club in the late 70s with your character with no idea of like who would be running the game or which dungeon you would be in. But your character went round you in a little brown manila envelope. And it's been a long time since that's happened because we've got like group character generation or shared world building or powered by the apocalypse or or any number of games really where our our advice over the last 70 odd podcasts has been get together as a group and figure this stuff out. But how was it for you to just sit down and just make one in a white room? Well, it was fine. It was a bit weird. I mean, the DM just said turn up with a third level character. So that's what I did. But I was (laughs) kind of expecting a little bit more. In the end, all I did was put on a group chat saying, I'm going to be good with a bow unless someone else already is, so let me know if you are. And that was <laughs> that was the extent of the pre-game discussion. Although it wasn't really a discussion because no one answered me. So I just assumed that, that was going to be the one that was good with a bow. <laughs> um, but yeah, so that when we actually got into the game, I was of the mindset that this is D&D, so something will come along that I can either hit or explore or do something else with pretty quickly. Because uh, mm. I wasn't expecting to have to do the uh, everybody chats to each other about what sort of game they want beforehand and all that kind of thing. There's just certain stuff mm. you expect with a D and D game, or I do, based on my history. Uh, 
and that is that you will go and find some goblins to kill or there'll be a dungeon or you know, some ruins that you have to go and investigate or something like that and you don't have to worry too much about setting the scene and how do you guys all know each other and what's your motivation mm-hmm. for being a, an adventurer or whatever. I mean, there is a little bit of that. I, mean, I generated some random uh, personality and background and bits and pieces that the, the generator gave me. So that gave me a little bit of role-playing stuff I could do in my own head, which is nice. I don't think you used to get in the old D&D. Mm-hmm. Uh, and without it being too extensive as well, like, you know, answer these 20 questions about your character. Well, who cares? But here's three things about your character, and they've all got, like, a hook. But good. I care about those quite a lot. They're great. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And I think, you know, the D&D is robust enough that um, if you want to sit together and generate your world, which is still a recommendation, I still think that's a good thing to do if you've got a home group, then, you know, knock yourself out. But it also has enough legs that you can play the character build game. Um Speaking of which, and, and this is something that's not my favourite aspect of D&D, so I'll put that out there straight away, but there are people who get a great deal of entertainment from just sitting with the player's handbook or D&D Beyond and, um, and plotting their characters. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that, that was really big in 3rd edition and still is in Pathfinder. Um, but even in 5th edition, there's, there's a certain glee to be had from just uh, the lonely fun of generating characters up through all of the levels and looking for your picks and and kind of trying to optimise, I suppose. Which I've always thought it's a peculiar thing to to get your kicks out of in a role playing game because it's just you know it's just way too chaotic to optimise in my experience. But but people do that. But I take it that's I'm, I'm guessing here that's not your style when you're thinking up a character. You're just taking a different slant on it. Yeah, I kind of think about what what sort of thing do I want to do in the game. Um, and I don't generally just want um, a fighter, for example. I want someone who could do something else as well. So that's why I picked a ranger in this instance. That I thought, well, they can fight a bit, and then they've also got this other stuff they do about the wilderness, or maybe a bit to do with animals or something. Mm-hmm. And a couple of spells here and there. So that seemed quite interesting. So that's why I went for that. I mean, I have it on good authority that the ranger is nowhere near as good as the rogue. And in fact, if I wanted to be effective, what I should have done was picked a rogue for that sort of role. But I don't care. I wanted <laughs> yeah. to play a ranger, so that's what I picked. You know. Yeah, exactly. And I don't really get on with exactly. people who sit around going, oh, we need a tank and we need a this and we need a that. It's just like, well, come up with some interesting characters. And like, as long as you don't all have wizards or something like that, although that would be a game in itself, mm. um, you know, I'm sure it will work out. You just all pick something different. So you've all got your own little niche. So when it comes time to shine, you've got your thing that you do that's cool and yeah. that's different than what everybody else does. Yeah, so, I mean, there's three of us in our party, aren't there? And we all rolled up our characters rolled up. <laughs> we generated our characters independently of one another and if we have got a dwarf a halfling and a gnome so we're a bit short on things <laughs> by accident and it's, we've not even gone for like a gonzo stupid options like we're not oh, deliberately really? going for comedy but it, that's okay once you go really but you get over it don't you but see I remember D&D when everybody was a human except that somebody might have got a really good stat array and they could play the elf but it, it was much more like the sort of <laughs> Yeah, but it's I different mean, I thought, now. I think it's just added a little bit of character to the characters almost because we, we're sort of going around this posse of short people with like, yeah. the, the dwarves, the lanky one, and you know. But when people chat to us, we're kind of like we're down here. Uh, yeah. But you know, you know, like between us, we had up to about ten feet tall, so <laughs> we'd have to carry a ten feet pole between the entire party if we wanted one for the adventure. We'd look like pieces of vegetable on the kebab if we were carrying that. <laughs> but I think in and, in and of itself, that's given us something like a talking point that our group has yeah. now that we would, just wouldn't have had if we'd picked different races or thought about it a bit more, I guess. Yeah, I concur. And I think one of one of the fun things about D&D is the, is the sheer amount of choice that you have. Um, and even if you go random, you'll come up with all kinds of bizarro combos. But I'm just looking through my player's handbook now and and they suggest that the first choice you make is a race. Um, and out of that, you've got dwarf, elf, halfling, human, as you would expect. And, uh, and then you've got the slightly more exotic stuff of dragonborn, gnome, half-elf, half-orc, and tiefling. So by my maths, that's, uh, that's like nine different races, which is a chunk of stuff. And then you've got classes, which is like your second choice. And it's barbarian, bard, cleric, druid, fighter, monk, paladin, ranger, rogue, sorcerer, warlock, wizard. So just mm. out of the combination of one of those and one of the other, that's a lot of combos. And um, some of them you just think, no, I, d- I really don't want to ever be whatever it is you, you don't like. I don't want to be an elven monk. That sounds silly. But I do like the idea of a, 
a tiefling barbarian. So you've got a few things in there that will probably wet your whistle. Uh, and I kind of defy anybody to look at those two lists and not immediately start thinking of what you would play, what you wouldn't play. It's mm. for me, it's a really easy in. Yeah, yeah. I don't. I mean, there's, there's. Th- I have issues. <laughs> if only well, you had a podcast to air them upon. <laughs> yeah. God. Well, I'll have to use this instead. But monk, really? I mean, is there a description of what that is? Because monks yeah. got introduced at some at point, and I don't think there there should be a, re- uh, a, a class. Sorry. Right, I've just so, got. Uh, go I agree. Yeah, well, no, I agree. I, I, me either. I think, I think it's just it doesn't fit in with with my headspace hmm. of what my personal fantasy world looks like, which does look a bit Western, to be honest, and it does look a bit Tolkien esque. And you know, clearly, there's loads and loads of worlds that you can play D and D in, but the default, the vanilla, if you like, and there's nothing wrong with vanilla. It's a fine flavour of ice cream is like your Forgotten Realms or Greyhawk, stuff like that. And, yeah, I don't know. The idea of, like, mountain temples and martial arts and um, wirefu, it doesn't sit right. So, yeah, I'm with you on that. But I think as well that this this big old list of things you could be are, are ready to be defined by the DM and by the group to say, well, this is the campaign setting that I'm looking at. And for me, you know, Dragonborn might be incredibly exotic. Go for it if you want to, but you'd be really rare. But the default race might be dwarves, and there are absolutely no tieflings. And I'd be absolutely cool with that. But the first thing I'd cut would be Monk. Yes. Yeah, without doubt. I've got the PDF here as well. I'm just flicking through it. It it just looks like it's straight out of China slash Japan, that kind of mishmash of things, and goes like the magic of key and things like that. It just doesn't Mm. sit with... Most of the other stuff that's in the book, which I think is the, my problem with it. Like, can you flip back a couple of pages? The fighter look is an atypical fighter, if anything, like slightly African influence, but then still got yeah. sort of a scale male armor uh, and looks a little bit Western, but then has got other exotic eth- ethnic influences into it. But it does look like a fantasy fighter to me, and that does seem yeah. to fit in with the world, if you know what I mean. It doesn't have to be a knight in plate mail, but it, it has to sort of have a certain feeling, I guess, and the monk just doesn't do it. It's like they pulled something out of a different culture and then just stuck it in without thinking about how can we make this relevant mm. to the game. I don't know. I mean, I don't really, I haven't really read any background or anything, but it just doesn't look right. Yeah, I mean, it is proper old school. It was in Advanced Dungeons and Dragons. That's where it comes from. So it goes all the way back to first edition. And I think in fifth edition, you see this quite a bit. There is some bits that are, that are objectively to someone like yourself who's not been into the game ever you'll think, what on earth is that doing there? But to other people, they're legacy. And mm. and they'd, they'd be wailing and gnashing of teeth if it was cut. I mean, one of the first things you would have encountered doing your character is, is generating your stats. But your stats mean nothing. They provide a modifier, but it doesn't matter that you've got a, a 16 strength. What matters is the modifier. Yeah. And whether you're rolling 3d6 or doing point by whatever, you're generating a number, which then generates another number. Yeah. And they're, they're, they're purely a legacy vestigial mechanic. And they mean... Not completely nothing. There's like a slight edge case where you might qualify for something later on if your dex is over 13. But that's it, as far as I can tell. There's nothing else to it. And it's there for the same reason as the monk, I think, because it, people will say it's not D&D if it's not there. Yeah, it's weird. I mean, I don't mind that it turns into a, a modifier for something else, but then it does feel odd that you've got a stat that's ranged between 3 and 18, ostensibly. And you've got a D20. It feels like there's more you could do with just rolling that D20 against that number you've already generated. Yeah. Um, but, you know, whatever. Mm. I guess that doesn't cool. bother me as much because it's once it's done, it doesn't get it's in done. the way. Yeah. 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 So you've got your race and your class, which is no different to how it's ever been, particularly, I suppose, outside of basic D&D. But did you notice, you notice some of the personality stuff did you notice the background that you could take? Because this is new to D&D and old news to any other role-playing game in the world ever. But you can have as your third pick rather than just race and class. You take race, class and background. So you might be an acolyte or you might be a sage or you might be a criminal. And this well, is like your free... Oh, right. Well, this is like yeah. the third pillar of your character. And this is like your pre-adventuring life because your class is kind of like the way you go adventuring now. And it's you know, the implicit bit there is that you're a professional adventurer. 
Um, but you may have been, um, and I'll just pick a random example, you may have been uh, an entertainer before you were an adventurer. And if you are, that gives you some skills, it gives you some proficiencies in various tools, it gives you an equipment package, um, it gives you a few, uh, a few little bits and pieces for your personality is where that character would have come from. Um, and it also gives you a little feature. Um, and it, like I say, it's a random example. I'll just read out the one for entertainer. So your feature is by popular demand. And it says, you can always find a place to perform, usually in an inn or tavern, but possibly with a circus, a theatre, or even in a noble's court. At such a place, you receive free lodging and food. Bloody, 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 blah. Um, and when strangers recognise you in a town where you've performed, they typically take a liking to you. So in every one of those backgrounds, there's a little feature, but it's a little bit of world building and it embeds you into the setting of it. And that's new to D&D. &D, and that's kind of cool, if you ask me. And I, I don't know how much it comes out in, in many people's games, but it's there. And I like it a lot. So uh, my wizard has got the sage background. And it means that um, if he ever fails a knowledge roll, he knows where to go to find out. <laughs> so like that, that, that's a mission generator. Mm. And that, that's how a sage should be. I don't know, but I know a man who does. And there might be something you have to do to get there or a favour you have to do. That's pretty sweet. Yeah, actually, I did pick it because it was on the card sheet. I picked Folk Hero. I just didn't realise that ah. it was a, a different thing. I thought it was just yeah. one of the, the things like your personality trait or whatever. So I'd probably get a thing for being that that I haven't realised. You get rustic hospitality. Yeah. Yeah. You're like a Robin Hood-style character. Yeah, you come from the ranks of the common folk. Um, and you can find a place to hide, rest, or recuperate among other commoners, unless you've shown yourself to be a danger to them. They will shield you from the law or anyone else searching for you, but they won't risk their lives for you. But that's kind of cool. That's nice. Yeah, I like that. Yeah, probably could have used that in the last game. <laughs> It'll never come up again now. But yeah, probably but, not. But good to know that it's there. But yeah, I mean, that's the sort of yeah. thing I was talking about, about having a little bit of background and you can do something with it. So just by being a folk hero, that gives you a little bit of a uh, either the GM something to kind of support that or DM in terms of how people react to you when you do go to places and they know you uh, yeah. or you as a player to kind of bring that in a little bit. So um, I like the fact there's just that extra bit of stuff that helps you weave something into the story that you're telling. Yeah. And the other bit of stuff that, again, you might have missed because you generated a third-level character is that um, character levels 1 and 2 in D&D these days are really apprentice levels. You, if you roll up a level 1 character, it's really, really basic. It's quite simple right. and quite fragile, um, but it's only designed to stay at first level for really I know, a couple of hours. Um, you'd want to be level 2 at the end of your first adventure or even session, possibly gotcha. even after just a couple of encounters and you get going. Um and then you're up to second level, which just like boosts you a little bit and gives you a bit of a feeling of forward momentum. And it's really only at third level that you pick stuff like a tradition um, or a path. And they've all got it at third level. That's when you're really like a proper adventurer. Hmm. So at third level is when you get to make a choice, which means that your ranger won't necessarily be like anyone else's. Whereas if it had done the apprentice levels, it would be. Um, so they have seeded a few little bits, usually into the mechanics, um, and sometimes it's a bit hidden away on the character sheet. But if, you, if you're not looking for it, you could miss it. But there's some real stuff in there that, that puts you into the world as well. So do you remember mm. what you took for Ranger, for example, at third level? No. <laughs> okay. Uh, and this is I'll what you get for poking for buttons on an app instead of doing it properly the old school <laughs> way. <laughs> <laughs> it feels a little bit like uh, when I'm playing Netrunner and I pe play people who've only ever played on Jinteki that does everything for you. And I catch them out with loads of stuff they're not doing because they're just used to a computer doing it for them. But, um, yeah, yeah, that's right. You'll either be a hunter or a beast master. Oh, hunter, I think. That sounds familiar. Yeah, I think. Well, given that you haven't got a dirty great bear following you around that I've noticed, I think you're probably a hunter. Because <laughs> yeah, I've got a, it's, um, you know, a racial enemy and stuff like that. Hunt down goblins and things. I don't know that's related. Yeah. It's a different pick altogether. But yeah. They all get a favoured enemy. That that just happens. They get natural explorer. And you get a bit of a fighting style as well. So you, I, think, I believe you're probably an archer. But you could have gone yeah. with a defensive fighter or dueling fighter or two-weapon fighter. Um, and yeah, you've, everyone picks their archetype at, at third level, and that's when you start taking a path. 
And um, and in the basic book, there's two paths for every character, and there's more available as you would imagine. Although not mm. loads, they've not gone completely crazy on the options books these days. It's still it's an expensive game to get into, you know, if you want to buy the books, um, or you even want to get the electronic versions of them. They're they're, they're reasonably pricey, um, but you don't have to then go off and, and buy loads and loads of source books, which you might have felt like you had to do in the previous editions. Yeah, it's, uh, it, and it's, it's something from closed. back in the day that sort of role master games like that sort of fell foul of as well that you've got tons of new classes and options all the time in all these different books and yeah if you're playing a game for any length of time you play our character with some options and you don't really you know change that much unless you're unfortunate enough to mm. lose a character or start a second campaign but the amount of content that publishers used to pump out for the amount of games that people actually used to play at a table it's no wonder they kind of got stuck at one point with the game and had to keep rebeating it because they're just publishing loads of books yeah. that really nobody needs to buy yeah yeah absolutely um i mean in D D, in fairness you know death is still a thing and i guess we'll mm. talk about that if we get to combat in a sec so i mean i i i'm happy for there to be loads of options but there are enough options in a D core book to last me my entire natural lifespan i'm not going to run out of things to do <laughs> or things to play it's a game with legs Definitely. Yeah. And, and we, we've looked at games before and we thought, these are great one-shots, so they're really cool premises, but would I want to be playing it for very long? And and often the answer is no, it's, it's been fun, but I want to move on, you know? Um, but but I keep coming back to D&D &D and people do. Um, let me ask you a question, Gaz. So, again, they've, they've hidden a few things away in here. D do you remember rolling on the trinket table when you pressed a button on your magic scrying device? Probably no, I not. I did, no. Okay, so rolling on a table has come back after a couple of editions away. Rolling on tables <laughs> is good. Yes, we like that. Yeah, that and, and not only that, it was also the introduction of the D100, which missed an entire edition. It didn't crop up before. So um, pick a number between 1 and 100, mate, and and uh, I'll tell you what trinket your character could have had. if you'd 67. 67, one off a crit in Rollmaster. Okay, uh, you possess a gold monocle frame without the lens. I think that's um, that's good. I like that idea. Yeah, uh, and and again, it's one of them where, and this is the thing that's in the uh, OSR games, isn't it? There's tables that have, mm -hmm. just have stuff on, and they they come up with ideas. And because my um, character's basically an archer, that immediately says to me that he's probably like a lucky thing or whatever. And even though it's got no lens in it, when he's trying to make that one good shot, he pulls out his monocle frame. And sticks it in his eye to take aim through, mm. and that's like he's like superstition that it's gonna it's gonna really help him out with that shot he needs to make or something. So exactly. think, things like that just feed the imagination, don't they? Yeah, and that's what it's for. This trinket table, it's wonderful. Every little thing on it is just full of imagination, and it's just a little sentence. Like you say, my character's got um, a, a letter from a dead colleague that contains a question I've never been able to find the answer to. Nice, and uh, that that may never come up. Who knows? It may never come up, but that's a roll on a table and off you go. And the trinket, for me, uh, tells me more about my character than probably my alignment does. And certainly <laughs> more than the fact I've got a short sword and a dagger and blah de blah de blah de blah. Um, yeah. That's great, because that's going to come out in the game, isn't it? Mm. And do you know what I like about that table? I'll just flake to it now, is that it has actually got 100 entries on it. Yep. Correct. Yeah, it's not... You get value for money. It's not, and it's not, has it got roll twice and take the worst or something on there? Has it got any other cop out options? I can't see that anywhere from a quick scan. But it's yeah, yeah it's, it's usually, like when you get a table that's like roll a d hundred and it's only got twenty options on it. It's like could I not just roll my d twenty because that would have been easier. Or yeah. for some reason a piece of chalk is one to seven, but uh, you know a gold monocle frame is that's right. eight to nine. It's like well, wh who's decided that chalk's uh, more likely or not more likely than a gold monocle frame. I mean, I guess it is in that example, but you know, it's that kind of arbitrary fanning about that just uh, makes me roll my eyes. So at least they've um, they've gone for D hundred, but they've used it properly in that they put yeah, other options in there. It does go all the way up to hundred as well. There isn't even a roll twice. It's, there are one hundred individual options, and I can see some Easter eggs in there from previous D and D adventures, which makes me smile. That's a good thing. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it's good to have it somewhere like that, isn't it? Rather than in the main body. If you can hmm. put your little Easter eggs in stuff like the extra tables or tucked away in sidebars and things, which it's not going to get in anybody else's way. Yeah. Yeah. Nice cool. little shout out to the fans.
The Smart Party are raising funds to help with the running costs of the show. We use Patreon, which is kind of like a modern magic item that turns you into a connoisseur of all that is good in gaming. To show your support, just head over to patreon.com slash thesmartparty. You can donate a dollar, a credit, a copper piece, or a fiver per month. It all goes into the portable whole of web hosting costs and helps us look after you every month with new Smart Party content. Patreons get a big thanks from us, some backer-only goodies as and when, and the warm, confident glow of the just and righteous to help you sleep at night. Join the Smart Party at patreon.com today and tell all your friends tomorrow. Cheers! Howdy, Smart Party fans! Thanks to your amazing backing of our loyal patrons, and your first issue of Smart Scene is now available to download at Drive Through RPG for the ridiculously low price of a mere $3 it can be nestling within your hard drive in seconds. Free to the advice of Trad Brad in Indiana, wax nostalgic with the 90s, chortle as you play con bingo. Just type Smart Scene into the search bar over at DriveThru. Years from now you'll be able to say with confidence, I like their early stuff the best. Stay smart now! Okay, it's right. So that, plus filling in some numbers and poking some buttons on your scrying window, and you've had yourself a character. A martial character, but did you note you had spells? I did. So, yeah, and... Um, Actually, apart from the Barbarian, every single class in the game has access to magic if it wants it, including fighters, if you take little variants or what have you, because spells and magic are still a massive part of D&D. Feature or bug, discuss. To me, they seem a bit overcomplicated still, mm. and I'm not entirely sure I'm doing it right. I'm aware I've got three spell slots, and I'm kind of just using them as... I can use any spell I want <laughs> and cross the slot off. But then I've only picked I've only picked three spells as well, and I don't know if that's right. Or I'm supposed to have learned more by now or something. Um, yeah. And the DM's not said anything, so I'm just kind of like, I pick three, and I'll just use them arbitrarily for now until somebody tells me different. Am I doing it wrong? You're doing it the way that most people ever played D&D, I think. Like, especially back in the day, in first edition and basic and what have you, if you tried to play Magic by the rules, you'd never get a spell off. It was ridiculous. <laughs> Um, or or every obstacle you came up against that needed a spell, you'd have to like camp for a day to relearn your spell and use it. Yeah. Now, modern D and D has has kind of helpfully, I think, made the game a lot more playable and taken out some of those little road bumps. But even I consider myself pretty experienced. I still have to check because there's really only two types of magic: arcane and divine. But there are variants in the way that every single magic using character class uses it, learns it, fills up their spell books, doesn't have spell books, gets them back at dawn, gets them back at midnight, gets a bonus spell at this level, gets a cantrip, has to concentrate, and that's just off the top of my head. And I can never hold it in my head. I've got to look up every time. So I could answer your question, mate, but I'd have to look. And that is that's rubbish because I've been playing there this game for coming on forty years, and I still have to look that up. That's yeah, yeah. In our last session, uh, we, we kind of had an incident on a mountain that was going to definitely require the Featherfall spell. Yes. Uh, but we we weren't, didn't really want to say anything either because there were some orc guards keeping watch below us. So we had to have like a little bit of a pause while we worked out, like, can you let go of the rope or do you need your hands? Do you have to say yeah. something? Do you need a component? What, like, do we need to roll to see if you can get it while you're tumbling down a mountain? It mm. just seemed like... Um, unnecessary faff and I think you're right like with all the spells there seem to be too many too many variations that essentially do the same thing but one does frost and one does heat but essentially both do the same damage for example and that mm. kind of thing uh, and it can be rationalised and made easier and you should just have a intuitive way of knowing what you have to do with your spells without having to look at all the different levers you have to pull to make it happen um, mm. I don't know I think it, I think that's partially a handover from like you say the old days where you used to have bits and pieces like that and, it, and people thought it made sense but in the modern day where someone can just fire an arrow or hit some with a sword someone else should just be able to cast a spell and not really worry about it too much mm. and not have too many options it, that aren't really options either I think that's that's what irritates yeah. me is sometimes you're not getting anything notably different but it has to be a different spell and I don't know why yeah uh, in its defence it's uh, if you can master what you've got in front of you. It's got that sort of depth. So for the sort of person that likes tinkering with stuff, that likes reading stuff, that likes knowing their game, 
and there, there's plenty of people who like playing the game that way there's there's plenty of stuff for you to chew on there so you know with that featherfall example it's um yeah we have to look it up but it was i didn't mind doing it and it's my character so i'll do it but there is a pause i so you know hopefully people aren't waiting too long while i do that but i look up and i see it's not got a verbal component it's like cool okay that means i can cast it silently it has got a somatic component which means i need to use my hands well well bums i'm hanging onto a rope hanging off a mountain and <laughs> and it has got a material component which i need to pull from my pouch now i'm going to say that 99 dms out of 100 would just go oh you just cast featherfall don't worry about it but for me that takes away some of the glory of the minutiae of role playing games mm. which is it's not about me reading the book it's about what scene does that paint in your head because yeah. you've got a border around the canvas and if you're quick about it and you're efficient and you don't just go, oh, hang on a minute, let me look it up. And everyone's going to make mistakes first to look anything up. But that, that for me, painted a really good scene where I'm hanging on to a rope. And my, my gnome has to have the, the brass balls to let go of the rope and trust that, that he can shout this spell out as he's in free fall, um, scrambling around for a feather in a pouch. That, that's like a, that's like a slow-mo bit in an action movie with Tom Cruise falling off of a building. So yeah. the payoff was worth it in that respect. But that's an edge case. I know what you're saying. Um, it's kind of the there's a bit of the it's not very similar to you. It's that it's that suspension of disbelief to a degree. And I know we're we're talking about like you know a gnome falling off a mountain with his two arms <laughs> below him. So we're already suspending quite a lot. Uh, but True. it's the fact that wizards, whoever they were, who invented these spells in the first place, decided that you have to use your hands and pull a feather out of a bag to use free feather fall when you're falling down a mountain or a pit or wherever else it might be. And it's just like. Some archmage at some point, not just go. You can shout feather and it'll work, or whatever it is that you need to do. Some just come kind of yeah. verbal thing that stops you from dying. Like after all these hundreds of years of magicians, there's no one like worked out that you can a way of doing it without there being risk to you dying before you can cast your spell and protecting yourself. It just doesn't seem to like that sort of thing. Seems like there's a detail in how you cast a spell that doesn't fit in with what I would expect someone to do developing that spell in this game world. And it's, it's a bit like when superheroes don't use the powers properly or things like that. Mm. It just irks me a little bit. And so while I understand the point you're saying, that it was like quite a fun bit where you've got to kind of let go of the rope to, to use your thing because that's a cool moment. Uh, uh, there's another part of me going like, well, who invented this spell for fuck's sake? You know, come on. Do, <laughs> do a better job, Archmage Colleges, or whoever it is who's invented these yeah. things. Uh, and there doesn't seem to be a lot of rhyme or reason about what, what does or doesn't need what component. It just seems a fairly arbitrary spread. So, well, yeah. I don't know. For me, I'd, I'd hand wave it, but that's, you know, it's not really getting yeah, away. Well, if you do that, you can just, like, not... You can ignore that bit of the spellcasting and get on with your game, to be honest. You can. You absolutely can. And, and again, I think there's a bit of legacy in there. And for me, I mean, D&D's always been a bit magic-rich for my blood. And I say that as a fan of D&D, I, I prefer lower fantasy things in my fiction and my films and, and that kind of stuff. So D&D's always had loads of magic in it. And the magic is a bit all-pervading as well um, because the the spells, which make up a good chunk of the player's handbook, probably about half of it. Um, in fact, I will check. Uh, oh, wow, more than that. So, yeah, about half of the book is, is spells. <laughs> They're in one of my problems. And, uh, there you go. Uh, but those spells are actually the list of powers and abilities that go through the entire game. And, you know, you and I won't have to have this in front of us because we're not running the game. But the monster manual, for example, is uh, not surprisingly full of monsters. Um, but the monsters have abilities, as you would expect. But the ability will sometimes basically say can cast Scorching Ray. Hmm. And you need to know what Scorching Ray does. And yeah, you'll have a player's handbook and you might know what the Scorching Ray does. And it's it's being used as a default, you know, can send out a fiery blast. Now, you know, in, in Savage Worlds, it'd be called the Bolt Power. and But there are so few of them, you can hold them in your head and you can put the trappings on. But to your point, there are so many trappings that they appear compulsory. And by using 100 pages of abilities to to be your your playbook for all the powers that exist in the rest of the game, you need to learn quite a lot of stuff as the GM. Yeah, quite a lot of stuff, or have complete faith in your character, in your players, which you should do, but players aren't necessarily going to want to go knowing the rules of the game and, go, and being their own GM. <laughs> Some players are a bit more casual than that, aren't they? Yeah, 
I mean, I think most players are happy to own their character. So if you pick a wizard, like, or whatever it is, warlock, sorcerer, whatever, you're sort of like, you're signing up to learn the rules for all your spells, and the GM or whoever DM should be telling you, like, I'm going to rely on you to learn these things and do them properly. So mm. over to you, uh, which would be fine. But as you point out, as a DM, you also then need to prep every, every adventure you run. Because if a monster's got any spells, you need to know how they work as well so that you can use them, um, which is just yeah. a bit awkward. And why not have yeah. a slightly asymmetrical game where you can just give the monster some powers and have it written down in the monster description so the DM knows what he's doing. Correct. And then there's also the the almost embarrassing thing that happened in our first session where an NPC wizard hired us to locate an object for him despite not having access to the first level spell, locate object. <laughs> which, you know, these, these things are in the game, which means they're in the world. Yeah, so <laughs> that's that superpowers <laughs> thing again. <laughs> <laughs> exactly, and if you and, and people can do this, and if you get good at D and D, and by I mean by good at D and D, it's a game you can get good at. It's a skill. It's a mm. game you can master. It's a game you can put years into. And if you look through the default player's handbook, monsters manual, all that stuff, if you try and build a world, you've got to make allowances for the stuff, or you've got to rule it out. So just playing vanilla D&D, it comes with assumptions baked in. It really does. And it's not being an arsehole player or a rules lawyer to suggest that the NPC wizard, why can't you locate an object then? Because I can. So <laughs> that's that's bizarre. <laughs> but that means the GM's had to bless him. It's not a trap, but the, but the game is full of traps like that. Mm. You know, if we're, if it's not in this game, but if detect evil is a thing, your campaign world can't be that vanilla. Hmm. Yeah, you can't oh, have it's a real thing. Some evil dude just hang out the bar and no one's noticed when there's three clerics yes. in the pub. You know, it's just not a Yeah. Yeah. Murder mysteries when you can do speak with dead um <laughs> at first level are kind of ruled out unless yeah. you are a dick DM and go, Well, your spells don't work in my campaign setting, in which case then I'd say, Well, can we can we play something that isn't D and D then because you're not playing it? Because you know. <laughs> Yeah, I think there's um You've got to know your stuff well enough that then you could you can subvert the things that do happen in the game. So yeah. it's got to be that there aren't any open there aren't any crimes of passion per se because they very quickly get resolved. But people do get murdered. It's always by someone who's got um, you know heavily masked and from the dark and they don't see their assailant. So then yeah. when you speak to the dead guy, he's like, I don't know what happened. I was just walking along and someone stabbed me in the back and that was it. Yeah, and that kind yeah. of thing. But you've got to think about what there is that, that people could do, and then how would you get around that? And then that's why it's happened, sort of thing, I guess. But it's an extra level of thought you've got to have and comfort in the game, which I think is why a lot of people play something like D and D and stick with it because there's a bit of an investment in terms of mm. whether it's you're making your character or knowing what all the monsters do or how you're going to balance it so that things make sense in the game world. And if you've bought into that, then why not keep playing it for a bit? Because you put quite a lot of effort into learning it. Yeah, and it's like um, it's it's a, it's also a big puzzle. The whole game is quite a big puzzle, and people like puzzles. And working out how to not win, but how to how to play the game well, and, and that's a massive value judgment. But what I mean by that is, you want to you want to be able to play in the world, have 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 a DM and other players who all play it, you know, properly, and and that means you know you you get to choose whether you can use all the bells and whistles and stuff like that, but. It means you do know the rules for like shoving people over because they exist, and and that's cool. It doesn't mean you have to memorise them all, but there's a puzzle to be unlocked, which is the whole world. Which is, um, you know, I've got oh another thing that happened in the game last night. It's another magic thing because magic tends to be so pervasive. But we'd come back from an adventure covered in filth. Well, with the simple application of a cantrip, you can clean all your clothes. So I mean, adventurers are always going to look pristine, aren't they? <laughs> obviously no matter what and you just don't get that from the artwork but I got, I kind of get it now and it's quite fun to just play those little mind games and it doesn't mean you're, you're being an adversarial with your DM but I don't think you can write um, a Pendragon adventure or a RuneQuest adventure or even just a generic fantasy adventure and expect it to survive D&D &D rules and characters. D&D &D is not vanilla, actually. I said it was earlier, but it's very much its own setting. It's Dungeons and Dragons. Yeah. And it's got stuff in it, and it's very magic-rich. If you took the magic out of the game, you wouldn't be playing D&D. &D. Yeah, yeah. I mean, we'd sort of defeated some goblins. We'd got bolts of cloth and kegs of beer and all kinds of stuff we'd discovered in this 
um, lair of some goblins, and I was like, well, I don't, we're not carrying all that round. I'm only three foot tall, the barrel's nearly as big as me. Uh, and you just mm. summoned a floating disc, and we loaded that up. You can carry 500 pounds worth of kit. So there's, yeah. um, you got this like scene of a little bit like The Hobbit or The Shire or something, but in the background is this invisible disc with like, a lot of stuff piled <laughs> up on that. top of it. And three short-ass <laughs> characters merrily going along, drink, smoking the pipeweed and drinking a bit of beer every now and again. Which is just something yeah. you won't get in other games. Well, that is a very D&D scene. That's the sort of thing that people yes. I could see happening in the world, if you know what I mean. Yeah. And I think you've kind of got to embrace it. If, if it's not for you, then it's not for you. No one says D&D has to be for you. And, and I think, actually, a lot of D&D games suffer when people don't embrace D&D. And then they go, oh, it's not really the game for me. It's like, well, it didn't have to be. And you're like accusing a canoe of being a shit hammer. <laughs> you know, It's not really the canoe's fault, is it? No. Correct. So, so oh, yeah. fighting. Go on then. Sorry, let's go on. We're going to go off tangent and not get to the end of the player's handbook. <laughs> That's true. <laughs> fighting. <laughs> That's fighting talk. Is um, that a part of D&D? So, yeah. Well, do you think it is? I mean, it is, isn't it? it is. But then yeah. it's part of all games, I think. Not all games, but you know what I mean. There aren't many RPGs without a combat chapter. There aren't many RPG sessions without a conflict of some sort. Um, and again, you know, D&D, D&D has plenty of fights. It's one of the three pillars of it. There's combat, exploration, and interaction, of which we've had all three in our recent sessions. Mm. Um, uh, not much fighting yesterday, but in the first session, we had some fighting. How did, that, how did that pan out for you? Was it nostalgic and sweet, or was it old school and rubbish, or was it a fresh blast of role-playing air? I have no idea how you felt about that. I thought it was all right. Um, we we got a little map put up on our screen. We had grids. We tried to hide around corners and use a bit of cover and stuff like that. Uh, but it did take away from me uh, a little bit of the stuff you get from the theatre of the mind when you're describing mm. what's happening and you've got your own little picture going on in your head because you've got something on screen in front of you or imagine in real life you'd have like a, your grid map out and some miniatures on it. So that's a preference thing, probably, but it, it did take away from some of the drama of the scene because I could see where stuff was. It was a little bit like a board game. I mean, it didn't. Mm. It's not a board game. It's still a role playing game, and we had a description around what we were doing and all that kind of stuff. Uh, but I could see where things were, and it wasn't. It took me out of being in the bowl of a tree uh, underground with this root system up to my knees in water, with like goblins behind every root branch and stuff like that, and into mm. just a tactical situation, I guess. Um, and then I, I guess the other sort of issue was that uh, there was a dwarf fighting the bugbear, and neither of them could damage the other really. So there was just this mm. for I don't know ten rounds. We were doing various bits and pieces, and the dwarf and the bugbear were just dancing around each other in the middle of the room, not doing anything. Which might have just been I think it was well pretty unlucky dice rolling in some extent, but that didn't feel like if it didn't feel like there was anything else you could do to change that. It felt like this is just how it's going to be. You know, you, you've got to keep rolling dice until someone rolls better. Or, you know, one of us kills our opponents because can help the dwarf out, or whatever it might be. So, I thought it was fine. Uh, it was the sort of thing I was expecting from a and d game, but, um, like, it didn't wow me, I guess, is the thing I'm saying. Yeah. How did you feel uh, after many years of playing other types of games? What was it like to roll a dice, realise you'd missed with your arrow, and scan your character sheet to find out there's no way of changing that? <laughs> it's a miss. <laughs> Uh, I'm actually used to it because I still run things like Pendragon, which is exactly the same. Uh, and there's, there's right. various role-playing games that still act like that. Um, and what you've got to do, and this is a tip for our GM, should you be listening, uh, is just move straight on as the DM. Because what happened a couple of times is a little pause afterwards where you know the dwarf says, oh, I've missed. And the, the DM goes, all oh, right, yeah. And then kind of like waits... I said, well, there's nothing the player can do, so you as the DM need to push that. So that, that's my, <laughs> my top DM tip, is if you are playing a game where there's nothing the player can do to change the situation, don't wait for anything else to happen, move on to the next bit of whatever it is. Mm. And that's what I do in Pendragon quite a lot. As soon as someone's missed, and they're starting to look a bit, you know, either a bit down, looking at the character sheet, doing something else, I'm like, straight away to the next player, what are you doing? Or whoever's next on the initiative, because you've got to move along. If there's nothing that can change the situation, move to the next thing that makes a difference. And it's quite a simple thing, but that's what you've got to do. And you've got to be in the mindset when you play that sometimes you're just going to roll a mess and that's the way it is. Move mm. on. Yeah. And, and if, if your turn comes back round again in, in under a minute, I think that's fair. Yeah. Um, and that's an arbitrary number I've picked out of the air. But if it's 20 minutes, that's a 
rubbish experience. Um, <laughs> and that's why I say push it, because then very quickly it'll come back to that player again. Hmm. I think the only time I got slightly nifty was I was trying to get the um, the Roll20 functionality to work. And then Matt said, oh, yeah, you've missed and moved on to the next person. I was like, I haven't rolled yet. I was just mashing the button trying to get the damage to come up at the same time as Matt. And apparently I lost a go. I was quite upset. (laughs) I'd have punished you for the same way. It's like when you sit around a real table and you just practice rolling your dice. It's like, no, stop it. Put it down. Stop fidgeting. Well, he wanted me to have it all there. I was happy to just use Roll20. but Yeah, agreed. Yeah, so I mean, playing online does put a different spin on things a little bit, doesn't it? Because up to that point, we'd had some nice maps to look at, and we've spoken before about the pros and cons of online play. But it was working really well, I think, just with a few players, and we managed to get our conversations in, um, some nice handouts, and it's all rocking along. But yeah, when you zoom to a grid, and you're suddenly moving tokens, and you can bring up little arrows that tell you how many feet it is to your opponent, it is, it can get quite board gamey. Now, I like board games, but I like board games when I'm playing a board game. So for me, I think I'm with you on this one, mate. I prefer a bit of theatre of the mind or my preferences for like, you know, zone stuff like you get in 13th Age. Yeah. And and I'd be happy to play nice big tactical combats, but I don't think 5th Edition supports it that well. Hmm. And admittedly, we're only playing at relatively low levels and it's only a couple of scraps. So, but I've played it plenty of other times and... Fourth edition was great for that. If that's the sort of thing you like, then you could happily spend all evening having a fight with a dragon, and it would be a really good encounter. But actually, there's not much meat on the bones of the combat in D&D, which mm. might sound bizarre, but it's, there isn't much to it. So you roll to hit, and if you hit, you deal damage, and there might be a couple of little side effects. But that's it, right? Yeah, I mean, for everything we've done for the last couple of sessions, in my head, I was thinking I could deal with this with Savage Worlds. I wasn't. Right. I wasn't thinking. I'd prefer to do it with Savage Worlds, or Savage Worlds would be better necessarily. But for the for what you're getting, I think Savage Worlds would have been equally as good if you wanted to mm. do that that sort of way. D and D's just got a, lot, a little bit more granular detail to it. So, as you say, like quite a lot of the classes have got access to some spells of some sort, which you probably lose out a bit if you're using Savage or something like that. Or, you know, mm. maybe there's a few more choices in terms of bits and pieces you can do. But I think broadly. It's just a slightly more uh, granular Savage Worlds, is how it feels to me anyway. Yeah. So that that kind of brings us round to, I suppose, the final thoughts about what it was like to, to play it and, um, and and whether you'd do it again. And I, I guess just before we do, the, the one thing that we've not mentioned so far, which, which often gets called upon, is, is the basic core engine of the game, which is a D20 role, but advantage and disadvantage is a thing. So mm. did you notice... Did you notice not having to deal with a lot of modifiers? Yeah, I really like the advantage-disadvantage type thing. Uh, I really appreciated it when it came out for the new edition of Cthulhu, uh, Mm. and it's in some other games as well, that kind of stuff. But it's a really easy way of moving on, and it feels good when you get it, right? Mm. If someone said, well, you've got plus four to this roll, you'd be like, okay, cool. Uh, But having an extra d20 to roll and seeing whether you get good or better on one or both and um, I think that just feels better as a player, it's a better experience you feel like yeah. you're twice as good for that go all of a sudden mm. yeah it does feel good and having disadvantage feels awful it does, yeah. um, <laughs> but <laughs> as it should but, and it works <laughs> yeah. uh, my, my very very favourite thing about advantage and disadvantage for that matter is if you forget you've got it or the GM forgets you've got it or a circumstance went unnoticed and someone wants to retrofit it you just roll the second dice. I know that doesn't sound like much, yeah. but you don't have to go back and do it all again. You can just roll again. That's quite clever. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It, uh, it, I think it allows for people in the first human. session. It was something like hunting goblins, and they're my favourite enemy. And I hadn't realised it was like, I know mm. you get advantage, guys. I was like, oh yeah, I hadn't, I hadn't really fucked it up necessarily. I just need to roll another d twenty, and then we're back See on if track. It's better. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Exactly. Have another shot. And I yeah, think so. I like that. Oh, sorry, just before we move off it, the other good bit about it, which might not be immediately obvious, is it gives you a better chance of critical in. So rather mm. than a straight up plus whatever, if you're rolling 2d20s and picking one, and 20s are critical, say, you've got two chances. So now you've got like twice the amount of chance of getting a critical you normally would because you've got advantage, which is something Absolutely. you might not necessarily think about straight away, but that's just, you know, you've immediately doubled your chances of getting a critical because you get to roll two dice. So that's another like, really cool benefit that's not... It's not required any clever maths or any messing about. You just roll an extra dice and straight away it's there, boom. 
exactly. Uh, and you know what? It's, it won't be as granular as picking from a simulationist list of modifiers for darkness and dimness and stuff. Although the game does yeah. still have that. It, it is a little bit schizophrenic sometimes in that it still has like you know modifiers for cover, which is, oh, I wish they'd gone all the way or none of the way at all on stuff like that. <laughs> yeah. it, it's, that's like the spells where sometimes you save, sometimes you roll to hit, sometimes it just happens, and you can you remember it? Nah, it's yeah. tough. Yeah, I know what you're saying. Yeah, so a bit inconsistent. So, overall then, early days, and you know, we've not exactly done an in-depth review of 5e. <laughs> like, it, both of our listeners have probably played it, you know, when it came out in August of 2014. <laughs> so, <laughs> hey, listen, we get our Dragon Meat podcast out really quick, all right? It just takes us longer to get around to the big things. <laughs> <laughs> But would you play again? Would you recommend it? How many how many stars or how many how many scimitars would you give it out of five or whatever the rating system is that we've never previously enjoyed? Um so oh, yeah, well we could leave my DM on tentahooks and just leave a, a long space. <laughs> yeah, that'd be me. Yeah, I'll play it again, definitely. I mean, like say as we've discussed many times, you know, system matters, but having the right people on the table matters as well and we've got that. So mm. It's definitely not like a system that's making me think, well, I can't play with uh, Baz and Dan and Matt anymore because it's just so horrible. It's it's fine. It's probably a three and a half scimitars out of five for me. I think, you know, it's okay. it's, 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 it's better than your average. Um, I think what it's missing, like I say, is I could run a Savage Adventure that would be very similar to what we've done, and I don't think we would have lost a great amount. Um, so there's nothing mm. that makes me want to go, well, I, I should run this with D&D because X, whatever reason. But if yeah. you want a solid role playing game, it's you know it's got all the tropes in there. It's got lots of options. It's got cool stuff that you can do, like you say, different races and classes and things. So you've got lots of options to replay it and get a different feel out of it. Yes, yeah, so it's, it's solid. Um, I just don't think it's doing anything groundbreaking or super exciting that a lot of other games can't do. But then why should it? It's there as like the mm. backbone mainstay role playing game. It just needs to be good at what it does and solid with you know. Plenty of options for buying extra stuff later because that's how the model's going to keep working. But I think it does D&D well, which is the main thing. I think some of the more recent mm. editions like 4th I didn't really get on with. I know you really liked it, but this one mm. definitely feels more like uh, an old-school D&D but updated for a modern age. Cool. Okay. And and I think it's worth bearing in mind as well that you know the thing that we are playing at the moment is is pretty much by the numbers out of the book. I've used the word vanilla before, and I don't mean that as a as a slight at all. Um, but we've not gone in any way exotic. We're not playing Spelljammer or Planescape or Ravenloft or any of the uh, the other stuff that could be considered more exotic or spicy. So yeah, you know, we're we're eating comfort food here, aren't we? Absolutely. I think if we did it again, not like I'm wishing the end of the campaign already, but you know, if it was my choice about what sort of thing we would do, I would pick something like Alcadim or something of that nature yeah. or Dark Sun. That's where I think I probably get a bit more out of it by adding in the extra stuff that's not just a generic fantasy setting by giving mm. it something else, and that'll bump it up to you know maybe four or four and a half centimeters by having a D&D specific world that's cool and got something different about it. Mm. Okie dokie. And I guess my last question would be: uh, How did the role playing go? Did it get in the way? Did it encourage it? Was it zero sum? I don't think there's a massive amount in the game. Uh, and again, rules about it. It's good that there are some skills. I know you don't like them, but I like being able to nope. roll my whatever it is, insight or persuasion or something of that nature or having those extra bits and pieces or if you're in the wilderness, being able to roll you know, your survival or whatever else you might want to use for a bit of tracking. So I like having those extra bits and pieces and the fact you've got your modifiers from your stats that mean you're better at some things than others and that kind of stuff. So that's all good. It's not a game that specifically encourages the interaction pillar as much as it does the the exploration or the fighty pillar, but that's fine. And like I say, it's got those little hooks that in making your character that mean you have got a little bit of character to your character. So if people play them up, then you get quite a bit out of that. If you know you've got four players and they've all got three hooks, you've got twelve hooks to start with. Brilliant. Cool. All right. Well, I mean, I think that brings us you know nearly to the top of an hour, mate. So um, well, you know, what, good what times. Do you think, I've enjoyed though, playing D and D. Me, yeah, I, I have no you. opinions on D and D whatsoever. <laughs> <laughs> I thought I was going to get away with it then. <laughs> yeah, well, com- compared I, to right, all the okay. other editions we've got, like, what do you think is the 
the sort of like top pro and con maybe or something like that of D and D fifth compared to everything that's gone before. Okay, so um, the the story of D and D is a long one, and I think your opinion of fifth edition is is going to really really be flavoured by your personal history with D and D before you pick up the book. So we started this show by saying there's an awful lot of people getting into D and D, and for them this is their this is the only one they've ever known. And mm. I think as a jumping on point, with all the help that you've got and the examples that you can see and the experience that it provides, I think it's a really good jumping on point. I think it could be better with its with its options for basic play, for fast play, for quick start, for that kind of thing. But I think it's a really, really good sound choice because it's got all of the corners have been rubbed off largely, hmm. but there's still plenty of depth in there if you want to go and and make it a bigger game for yourself. So you could play it shallow, you could play it deep, you could play it broad, you could play it narrow. Happy days. It is all things to all people. However, if you come to this edition from previous editions, then you bring a you bring a bit of baggage with you. And it kind of depends what your favourite was. Because the various editions of D&D over the years have been largely the same game, but almost... It's very, very difficult to reconcile somebody who prefers 4th edition D&D with someone who prefers basic red books red box D&D they're totally different games they both say Dungeons and Dragons on the front they're both about going into dungeons and fighting dragons but the approach is uh, on a systemic level on a philosophical level they, they're as different as RuneQuest and The One Ring mm. both fantasy games but you know really they are different and that that's problematic because if you have to find the kind of D&D you want We've been playing it pretty vanilla. I keep using that word, but I think it's the right one to use. If if we really wanted to exercise our preferences, there's enough space in the D&D canon to do that. So if you are a system masterist, there's loads there for you to do. If you like all the talky bits and having a noble fiefdom and uh, playing court diplomacy, you could play games of D&D like that, no problem. If you like smacking faces of forks, there's that in there for you too. But for your preference, there's probably an addition. Now, that's, that might sound a bit weird, but if you're really into fighting and you like that kind of tactical board game element where you know every swing of the sword matters and every step you take matters, then 5th edition is not as good as 4th. Hmm. And if you like, like low-level lethality and uh, generating characters in under 10 minutes and big parties and encumbrance, then 5th edition is worse, objectively, than playing basic D&D. Mm. Um, and if you like plotting out your character build, and you like having a much more simulationist environment where fighting on board a ship that's in a stormy sea will be harder than fighting on board a ship in a harbour, then 3rd edition is better than 5th <laughs> edition. Yeah. If you like that things. And, and you just can't help but ask those questions of yourself. So the questions you were asking of yourself playing D is, um, could I do this in Savage Worlds? The question I ask myself for 5th edition is, could I do that in 4th? Could I do it in 3rd? Could I do it in 2nd? Could I do it in 1st? Why have I got 5th? Mm. And the answer is, and, and I think 5th is a compromise edition. And I don't mean compromise as in like, hang your head in shame, you've been compromised. <laughs> I mean, you're, you're, it's for the greater good. You, got, you want to get a game on. You want to get players for your game. You want people to enjoy it. Everybody can enjoy 5th edition, but you have to kind of, you have to accept that your your peak experience has been blunted somewhat and it's been leveled out like a graphic equalizer <laughs> yeah so for me i find it i find it fine i find it really enjoyable and it is like a, a nice bit of pub grub but i don't want to eat that every day yeah fair enough um yeah but i think it does feel like dnd i think ultimately is the thing about yes. it for all the changes um and it's nice to see in a way that DD has got that sort of storied history compared to, say, Call of Cthulhu, for example, which had six editions, which are all fundamentally the same edition. And it's only mm -hmm. seventh that's really yeah. done anything a little bit different. So at least with D&D, they have felt like different games. And like you say, if you've got a different preference, there is an edition out there for you. Happy days. Mm. Yeah. And there's, there's people tinkering with this kind of stuff all the time. I, I made it sound like I don't like 5th edition. I do like 5th edition. I really enjoyed playing the last couple of sessions. And I've DM'd it or GM'd it quite a lot. Um, and, you know, I sold my soul to D&D a long time ago because there's enough in it that you can play it any way you want to. I think, for me, it comes down to finding the right people around the table. And um, 
I would probably, if I was starting a new group and wanted to play D&D, I probably would go with fifth. But that's that's as a matter of convenience, mm-hmm. rather than any kind of like strong feeling one way or the other. It's the current edition. It's easy to get. It's easy for your players to get. It's really well supported from a gameplay point of view. Um, and what, and this is I think quite a big deal. All of the other stuff that you've ever had in the history of D and D is pretty readily convertible to fifth. It's not backwards compatible, but I think we're playing a third edition adventure. I think. And um, and all of my old books and my old monsters and everything else are a really good inspiration. It's not hard to port stuff into fifth, and um, and there you go. If I had my absolute way, I'd play Thirteenth Age, which I count as D and D. That's but that's that's me twisting all the levers to my personal preference. My little graphic equalizer comes out and it spits out the word Thirteenth Age at the end. For other people, it would say uh, it would say play RuneQuest. Uh, or it would say play first edition AD and D, or it would it would say you know write your own hack of something or play the black hack. Yeah, 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 for shizzle. Yeah, well that might be um, might be where our Venn diagram gets close. I'm gonna buzz if I run some thirteenth uh, edition Glorantha, so I can have the old <laughs> ring quest feel, and you can play your favorite edition of D and D, and it's uh, a match yeah, made in heaven. True. Yeah, I think that may have happened on purpose. Maybe that's uh, maybe that's. <laughs> Well, we cross the streams. I think we've got some RuneQuest in our future anyway, because we're so bleeding edge. We've now decided to look at games from the late seventies, right? So. <laughs> we're a broad church. <laughs> Nothing else. We are. Oh, cool. So that's it for us for this week. I think we may return to this subject. Uh, we may not. It depends, listeners. Should we return to this subject? Do you want us to be talking about D and D, or do you come to us for all the other games in the world? I'm happy to talk about D&D. I've, I've managed to resist it for like 69 long episodes of having to listen to hot war stories. So I think <laughs> it's about time. I think we can push this on to episode 100. So write in for the usual channels if you want to hear more D&D. Or if you want us to go back to talking about games no one's heard of, you can do that too. <laughs> you know how to reach us by now, right? Yeah, and if you want to help me, dear listeners, fend Baz off from his D&D obsession from the 79 episodes or whatever it is, and do write in and let us know that. Otherwise, uh, right. we may be forced to go through the Dungeon Master's Guide or Monster Manual. Who knows? But do write in, let us know, catch us on the forums, via the Twitters, Facebook, wherever you can. But for night, that's all from us. You can get in touch with the Smart Party via your favourite electronic means. Look us up on the forums where we're just about everywhere, or you can simply email us at thesmartparty at hotmail.com. Your comments, insights, questions and revelations are always welcome. More diplomacy! Right, wash your armour class, you arsehole.